Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Hello, Shabbat Shalom. I want to briefly introduce our, our, our good friend, uh, Joel Jelski, who's here again with us. For those of you who might not know him, Joel's a native Israeli believer. His wife, Teresa, is from Mexico. She's unfortunately not here with him today. Uh, after serving uh, three years in the IDF, uh, Joel went into full-time ministry. He's been in full-time ministry since 2012. Uh, Joel and Teresa have one son, Boaz. Uh, Joel served for over five years in the Israeli House of Prayer, Sukkot Hallel, in Jerusalem, and is a youth leader in the local congregation, Ahabat Yeshua, for over four years. Then in 2017, uh, God called them to the Galil, to the Galilee, and to join Itan Shifkov, become part of this team called, of ministry called Fields of Wheat. And Joel is now the director for this Katsir National Youth Camps over all of Israel, and is on the leadership team for the Katsir. It's an equipping and discipleship program. So Joel and Teresa, their vision for, for their ministry is to see their generation of young people pursue the presence of the Lord in unity, Jew and Arab, Jew and Gentile, one in Messiah, uh, and to walk in the power of the Ruach, the Holy Spirit, uh, and to be em- his emissaries, uh, his apostles, his sent ones uh, for his kingdom, both in Israel and throughout the nations. And they have a special calling uh, throughout the Middle East. And Joel has been to many, many countries, sometimes secretly across the borders uh, to the Middle East uh, to be uh, God's witness. And their heart uh, is to father young people into their identity and calling in God. And raise up labors for the harvest field, for it is white with the harvest. Amen. Joel. Thank you. I think I have this mic. One, two, one, two, three. Okay, there we go. Can you hear me? Good. It's my pleasure to be with you this morning. Shabbat shalom. Very happy to be back after two plus years of not being able to travel and leave Israel. Um, I'm very happy to be here. I'm sad that my family's not here with me. Uh, Teresa would have loved to see many of you. Um, and we're just so grateful uh, for all of your prayers uh, over, the, over the years. Um, it's just nice to be out of Israel. <laughs> it's, uh, it's like breathing air sometimes. You need a, you need a break. Um, it's after two years of just being in Israel. So also pray for Teresa. She's alone right now. Uh, she is pregnant, five months pregnant. Uh, we, we're going to have a baby boy in January, and she is with Boaz, who just started. Uh, he's doing another year of kindergarten, so he went back to school, uh, and she'll, she's alone for about three weeks. I get back home to Israel uh, September 21st, and then October 7th, I leave again for another three weeks to travel with Eitan. We'll be all over the States uh, traveling and uh, doing some ministry and doing fundraising for our ministry, Fields of Wheat. Um, so what I'm doing here in the state is what I call my personal support um, as an independent, um, not independent, I'm under a ministry, but as a missionary, we don't say the word missionary in Israel, but as a missionary, uh, I raise my own support uh, in order to help the ministry. Uh, it's obviously a blessing to the ministry that I do that. It also gives me some flexibility, um, but also we'll be traveling to raise uh, money for fields of wheat as a ministry. So if you're uh, if you want to know more about us, I'm, I'll be putting some brochures outside. Uh, I'll stay here also a little bit to talk to people. Um, and you can just grab a brochure and hopefully keep it so you can remember to pray for us. There's different information on here about our family, ministry, vision, um, and just give some points for prayer. Also, I'm going to put out some papers for uh, signing up for our updates. If you're interested in receiving our updates, we send them out usually every month. Um, and we just send out family updates, ministry updates, how you can be praying for us. Uh, so if you would like to receive those, just leave your email and name, and I will add you to that list. All right, well, let's turn our hearts to the Lord. That's enough about me. Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, Lord, we, uh, first of all, I just I, we want to remember, Lord, all the families today who are remembering um, a very traumatic event, Lord, of loss, um, and not just loss, I was reading um, two days ago about it wasn't just the people who were killed in the September 11 attacks, but they estimate that thousands others are now dealing with the consequences of, such, of that attack. Um, I was reading about one woman who passed away from cancer 10 years later 
from lung cancer. Um, she was she became famous. A photograph of her that went viral became famous. Um, she was covered in, in dust, but that dust was toxic. And uh, about 10 years later, she passed away from lung cancer. Um, so, Father, we just pray for all the families right now dealing ju- not just the loss of their, or, of their loved ones and remembering them, Lord, but also all the people dealing with sickness and the consequences, the after effects, uh, the long-term effects, Lord, of, of what happened. Lord, all the people who experienced deep trauma, um, very, very deep trauma, Lord, thousands and thousands of people who were traumatized and deal with PTSD and um, emotional effects, Lord. We just pray for every family right now, Lord, struggling and dealing with those things. We ask that you would visit them in a powerful way, Lord, that you would send your Holy Spirit to, co- to comfort them and to have compassion on them, Lord. And Father, we ask that you would use this day to continue turning people's hearts to you as a reminder, Lord, to turn people to you, Lord. Hallelujah. Father, we, we ask that you would speak to us today. We open our hearts. Speak to us, Lord. We want to hear your word, not mine. Lord, I ask that you would speak through me. Hallelujah. We ask for your presence to be here among us, Lord. In Yeshua's name. Amen. All right, so let's open in Luke chapter 3. chapter 3 and we're going to start from verse let's start from verse 3 so speaking of John the Baptist it says and he went into all the regions into the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. You brood of vipers. Now here is actually speaking to the Sadducees. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. And be content with your wages. And this is the key verse right here in verse 15. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, the Christ. That last phrase right there, 15, is the key to understanding the context. The people were in expectation. There was an expectation during that time that the Messiah was about to show up on the scene. Yeshua showing up when he did, being born when he did, was not accidental, a coincidence. It was not something that was unexpected. They were actually expecting it to happen at some point during that time frame. They were in expectancy for the Messiah to come. And John was a form or a precursor to who the Messiah would be. So they, they started thinking he might be it. John might actually be the Messiah we've been waiting for. But there was this expectation inside. People were waiting for the coming Messiah. It was something they lived with, they longed for. And their question, according to such an expectation, was, what should we do? 
How then shall we live? What should we do? What is the expectation? And he's calling them into repentance. But they're asking them, how should we repent? What should we do after we repent? The expectation was creating an environment for transformation. The expectation was creating an environment where people realize the urgency of the hour to return to the Lord. Now the word that John uses in Hebrew, it says, Shuvu uh, Ladonai. It's about returning to the Lord, repenting. It's the same word that's used in Hosea chapter 14, which is the verse that everybody reads on Yom Kippur. Shuvu Ladonai. Shuvu Israel. That's why we call it Shabbat Shuvah. It comes from... It comes from that verse in Hosea chapter 14. To return to the Lord. The expectation, the understanding of the season and the times they lived in were creating this expectation and also this understanding that they needed to return to the Lord. They needed to repent. Something needed to change in their life. People didn't go out and journey into the desert for no reason. It wasn't just that they were curious. Some people were curious. John was a curious person. Some people were probably curious. They wanted to see who this person was who dressed very weirdly and ate very weirdly. Who was this guy? But people were going out there for a reason because of the message. Because they realized that something important was taking place. Something was happening. Expectation. And the expectation was for the coming Messiah. And Yeshua continued... During his ministry, he continued in that line of thought. Yeshua was the Messiah, but he didn't stop there. He created another expectation. In Matthew 4.17, it says, From that time, Yeshua began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So John is talking about the coming Messiah, the one who's going to come. And Yeshua begins to speak about the coming kingdom. It was the next form of expectation. At first they were expecting the coming Messiah. Now the Messiah comes. What is, the, what is Yeshua creating an expectation? The coming kingdom. The restoration of the kingdom. Which is ultimately what the Messiah was about. It was about establishing His kingdom on the earth. Now you have to, we have to remember, um, today we very much separated the physical from the spiritual. In Yeshua's time there was no separation the spiritual was physical. The, the, the spiritual took part in everyday life, in kingdom life, in laws, and in everything. It was, it was, the idea of the kingdom was not separate as a spiritual thing from the very reality they lived in on a day-to-day basis. Does that make sense? And so when he's talking about a kingdom, they're thinking a literal kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. He's speaking to them about the very restoration of the kingdom to the earth that they were all looking to. Now, obviously that had to do with the restoration of Israel. But it was about the restoration of the kingdom of God to the earth. Returning to Genesis 1. God's true desire to dwell with man. To walk with them in the garden and to restore the earth. So he's creating expectation. And John... um, and the, uh, John and also the rabbis at the time were living with expectation. We see the same lifestyle in the early disciples, the, the, the early um, body in, in Israel at the time and even afterwards. Um, the first, how would you call this? The first generation of believers. But the, the, that, that first generation of believers were all expecting Yeshua to return. They lived with a literal expectation. It wasn't um, they didn't just speak about it as a parable or um, I can't think of the word for it in English but it was a very real expectation. They really thought Yeshua was about to return in their day. They saw him go up physically. They saw him be lifted up in the clouds into heaven and the angels told them in the same way that he went up he will come back. And they were believing and they were 100% convinced He was coming back in their day. Were they wrong? Maybe. Obviously they were maybe in in how it ultimately played out. But they weren't wrong in the way they lived. Because their expectation dictated how they lived on a day-to-day basis. The expectation of the Messiah returning. The urgency of the hour. Changed the way they lived. It has to. 
If you're expecting the Messiah to come back in your lifetime, it should most definitely affect every single aspect of our life. How we invest our time, how we invest our money, how we train our family and and, uh, equip and train our children to grow up, how we uh, live in the faith, how we uh, walk with the Lord, our intimacy. It should affect, it should affect how we pray, how we view politics, everything. The return of the Lord should absolutely change every single aspect of our life. And living with that expectation should change you. Which is why the the Word of God is very clear about understanding the seasons and the times that we live in and about expecting and looking for the return of Yeshua. How many of you have heard um, these thoughts... I hope he doesn't come back soon because I want to do this and that. Now, as a young man, I'll, I'll, this is a little bit embarrassing. I've heard this. We don't talk about this very openly. But I've heard men say, I hope Yeshua doesn't come back because I want to have sex before he comes back. I want to experience that. I want to get married and have sex before he comes back. Right? And it seems like an, it, it's not wrong. That that's not sin. Okay? These are believing people. Like they're saying, I want to be married. I want to experience the joy of intimacy with a woman before the Lord returns. Is that biblical? Is that biblical to put other things before his return? Should that be our priority? See, we've allowed certain comforts and certain things to shift our priorities. And other things have taken um, our attention or our priority in life. I want to go to college. I want to achieve this. I want to achieve that. I want to reach a certain status. I want to accomplish certain things. I want to experience certain things before the Lord returns. And yet the Bible tells us that our main focus, one of our, our, our main priorities should be the expectation of the Lord's return. Hastening the day of the Lord. The Lord's return should be one of our priorities. And Yom Kippur and the feasts, especially uh, during the season, are a reminder of that. Yom Tuah is a reminder to us that the Lord is going to come back with the shout of a trumpet, the sound of a trumpet. I had a pastor once tell me uh, he had an open vision. He believed in pre-trib rapture, but um, until the Lord changed his mind. But um, he had an open vision. And in this vision, I mean, he said it was like he was in it. And he said in this vision, I was in, in a cafeteria somewhere in the mountains. He, he, it wasn't clear where he was at exactly, but he was somewhere. There was a lot of people there. And out of nowhere, he said, I heard the loudest sound of a trumpet I've ever heard in my life. And he said it filled the sky and nobody knew where it was coming from. But everybody stood up to their feet. And everyone knew in that moment what was happening. And he said it was like the sound that covered the earth. Everyone, he knew in that moment that everyone all over the earth could hear that sound. Just thinking about that, I'm like, whoa. Um, But Yom Tuas reminds us that he's coming back with the sound of a trumpet. The feasts are not just about remembering but was, but preparing our hearts about what is to come. The feasts are about preparing our hearts for what is to come. Yom Tua, the return of the Lord to this earth. That should remind us that that needs to be our first priority. Walking with the Lord in intimacy, in light of his return. The parable of the ten virgins, being one of the wise virgins, collecting or um, how do you say, collecting uh, oil, being ready, being prepared, our hearts. Yom Kippur is an interesting feast because, for many people, it seems to have this mystifying atmosphere I don't know how to explain it we call it the holiest day of the year but that's an interesting idea because is it really any holier than any other day that we walk with the Lord does it have any other real significance does it offer us any kind of salvation does it have any power to save us or change us not really Yom Kippur doesn't have any power on its own it has no no special uh, mystic power to do anything in our life 
Yom Kippur serves as a reminder that we are to consecrate ourselves and present ourselves as a living sacrifice to the Lord, that He paid the price, that His blood paid the price for us. We see this idea also in Romans uh, chapter 12. You know, we read today Romans 10, but after Romans 9, 10, 11, which is Paul's exposition on Israel and God's heart for Israel um, and the Jewish people, what is their response? When he talks about in Romans 11, when, when, uh, when they accept, when they come into acceptance or um, how much more will their acceptance be if not life from the dead? And he's talking about end time restoration, the spiritual restoration of Israel. And life from the dead being a very literal thing. When Yeshua comes back, the dead will rise from their graves. Um, what is Paul's response to that in chapter 12? The first, the first response to Paul's exposition about Israel and its restoration. Chapter 12. Therefore, present yourselves as a living sacrifice. Therefore. Understanding the times and the seasons le- leads us into changing the way we live and the way we present ourselves to the Lord. Yom Kippur is also an interesting feast because it wasn't just individual. It was corporate. Um, in the West, we've really lost this concept of collective guilt because it's become such an individualistic society. But in the Bible, it's clear that there is collective guilt. Um, and we see also God judging nations. We see it in Joel chapter 3 where he enters into judgment with the nations for dividing the land in the valley of Jehoshaphat. We see it in uh, Matthew chapter 25 where he talks about goat and sheep nations and dividing them. We see, we see it in Zechariah chapter 12 and 14 where he fights the nations that come against Jerusalem. And so we see that there's this idea that's not relegated to the Old Testament. It's still relevant in the New Testament that there is a judgment reserved for nations. Now how does that look? I have no idea. What does that mean for us individually? I have no idea. I'm just saying that it's there. It's in the Bible and somehow God's going to judge the nations. We have to deal with that somehow. Um, I, I met a missionary once. Uh, he was a missionary to the tribal people in Mexico in the mountains. Um, and he said, when you're, when you're uh, reaching to these tribes who, who are very disconnected from modern Western society, he said they don't have an understanding of individual guilt and salvation. He said, when one person from the tribe sins or hurts somebody else from another tribe, the whole tribe is seen as responsible. Everyone is collectively guilty for one person's sin. And in the same, in the same, um, in the same way, when they talk about salvation, they don't understand individual salvation. They understand salvation as a collective group. That God wants to save people groups. That God wants to save whole tribes and, and, and families. And so they, they still have a very ancient way of thinking, which is also something you see in the Middle East. It's a very tribal mentality. You see it especially with the Arab people. The Jewish people today have left that a little bit because of having lived so long in, um, in Western society, in Europe. Uh, most of the Jewish people in Israel came, uh, not most, but a lot of them came from Europe and they really kind of established the norms of society in Israel. A lot of the Jewish people who came from Arab countries still maintain that kind of mentality. The Moroccans, the Yemenites, um, uh, Jewish people from Iraq and Syria. They still have a very family-oriented tribal mentality. But you see this especially having traveled in the Middle East. There is a very tribal mentality where tribes and family groups are collectively guilty for one person's sin. We see this especially in the Arab society in Israel. There's... there's um, it's been in the news a lot recently, all the violence in Arab society. A lot of it stems from family feuds. Because one person uh, does something, this disrespect, dishonors, or does something to another uh, family, one of the members of the family, therefore the whole family is guilty. And they will literally kill each other over dishonor and disrespect and hurt for generations. I mean, there, is, there are family feuds in Arab society that go back, I mean, decades. Um, and so there's this very tribal mentality, which tells us that there was something at the time that people understood that it was not individual. You didn't present yourself on your own to the Lord on Yom Kippur. It was the people of Israel coming before the Lord as a people group. There was an understanding of collective guilt as a nation. And again, I don't understand all the in and outs of it. How does the Lord 
differentiate? I don't know. But we have to deal with that question. God will judge nations. And Yom Kippur offers us a glimpse into national repentance. Repentance of nations. The turning back of nations to the Lord. Now Matthew 25 gives us hope because if there's sheep nations, it means that there's nations who have actually decided to follow the Lord. It gives us hope that we're not doomed for just every nation um, failing and going in a different direction. And specifically, I believe Matthew 25 is about the question of Israel. It talks about if you gave water or food to one of the least of these, uh, my brothers. Um, but then he's speaking about nations, that he will separate sheep nations and goat nations based on how they treated his brothers. I personally believe that's speaking about how the nations will treat Israel in relation to Zechariah chapter 12, Zechariah chapter 14, the nations gathering against Jerusalem. So I believe there's hope for nations to repent and turn to the Lord and not be a part of the enemy's gathering of the nations against his anointed one. That's my personal belief. But we can, we can wrestle with these questions and understand that there's a call for national repentance. September 11th served as a... As a, as a how would you call this? It's a very different event that shook the nation. Uh, I don't believe the U.S. had ever experienced anything like that. Um, and I remember Mike Bickle talking about September, September 11th, uh, Mike Bickle from IHOP. And he said, in the months following September 11th, the houses of prayer were filled with people. The churches were overflowing with people. Because crisis and uh, moments of crisis serve as a reminder that we are not really in control. And so we come back to the Lord. Now sadly, after, after a few months, people go back to the daily way of life and forget the Lord and go to church on the equivalent of that in, 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 in a Jewish way of thought would be we go to church on the feasts. We go to congregation on the feasts. right? But um, crisis moments offer us an opportunity for repentance the Lord doesn't want us to suffer so we repent so he gave us the feasts he gave us these moments that are appointed times to examine our life and say Lord what do you need to change in me Lord where do I need to repent now thankfully as believers we have a way to go about this that is that is true because we are a new creation in Him. We are being transformed into His image. Our mind is being constantly renewed. Sadly, I see people, you know, you see people in Israel and um, these days of tshuva, aseret yimei tshuva, the 10 days of repentance before Yom Kippur. Um, they're also called in Hebrew, ayamim anoraim, which is like the, the wondrous or the days of awe, the days of wonder, the days of um, terror, actually is also another translation for it, the days of fear. Um, that word Noah has a lot of different meanings to it, but um, there's this this almost fear or panic that takes over people that they they have to go and they have to start asking forgiveness for every person they can remember that they hurt. The problem is you can't remember everyone. What happened to the people you don't remember that you hurt? You know what happened with the sins you don't remember about? And you you can't repent of every single little thing you did. You you simply cannot. And so you go through this panic of I have to repent and I have to say sorry for everything I did lest, with this fear that my, my name is not going to be written in the book of life. Right? It's like Yom Kippur is about your name being written in the book of life or death. And so you have to do everything you can so that your name is in the book of life, that your sins are forgiven. And rabbis will literally argue, I was reading about this, they argue about letters in the prayers, whether this letter is in the correct place or not, whether this word is important or not, and rabbis will disagree. And if you say this prayer wrong, then you have to do it again and it's not good enough. And if you forgot to do the prayer, then you have to go back. And if other rabbis say, well, you missed your chance, so you can't go back. And I mean, they're arguing over semantics, literally. And they're forgetting the very nature of the feast is about the blood. It's about the sacrifice. It's about the one who died for us. And you become so engulfed in, in tradition and arguments and um, even liturgy that you forget what it is that you're actually doing. It's not about remembering every single sin and every single bad thing you did and repenting before every person that you hurt and making sure that you have everything straightened out. 
Yom Kippur was about consecrating ourselves to the Lord. It was presenting the assembly of Israel, presenting ourselves to the Lord, holy and blameless. Our sins being forgiven. There's nothing we can do in our power to make the Lord forgive us or here, I've repented of everything I can remember, Lord. Now I'm good. Until next year. Then I have to do it again. And that's a sad fact. It's, it becomes this repetition where there's panic and fear. The Lord, through His sacrifice, covered our sins. He's given us access. We sang it today. He's given us access into the Holy of Holies. Not just once a year and only one person who was the high, the high priest, but all of us have access into the Holy of Holies through His blood every single day. Every single day. And Yom Kippur simply serves as a reminder that that is our reality as believers. Yom Kippur was one day a year that the high priest, only one person could enter the Holy of Holies. We can live in that reality every single day, all of us, corporately, individually. That is how we live. That is our reality. And repentance for us is not about remembering every single little thing we did and making sure that we apologize and say sorry and feel bad about it. Repentance is about turning our gaze to the Lord and saying, Lord, transform me, change me. Here I am, I'm surrendered to you. I am a living sacrifice. Repentance is about allowing Him to change us, not changing ourselves. We don't have the power to do that. We always, and people laugh, like even you know, secular Jews, they laugh at this. They, they look at all the things that religious people go through to repent. And they say, well, what happens the next, the next day? You know, the next morning you, you do something wrong. It's like, well, now we have to wait till next year. It's a horrible way to live. But we have access to forgiveness every day, every moment. We have access to the blood. We have access to the Holy of Holies, to communion with God. That's what Yom Kippur is here to show us. But it's also here to show us that He's coming back and He's going to judge the earth. He's going to judge us as individuals. He's going to judge nations. Which is why crisis events remind us of this terrifying fact that we're not in control and bad things happen. And it, it turns us to the Lord. But we use, we use these, these feasts to remind us to remember and to look forward and to prepare our hearts. Um, Yom Kippur is... Where do we see this idea of the book of life and book of death is in Revelation. The great white throne. When the king returns. It's after the king returns. But it's after the thousand year reign. And he is judging everyone. And he's opening the book of life and the book of death. And our names will be written in the book of life. Which is the last thing the enemy wants. I want to encourage you to allow this feast to prepare your heart and to meditate on the fact that He is coming back and that He is coming back to judge the earth. And with that reality in mind, it should create an expectation and urgency in our hearts for how we should live. In all of the, the things you'll do over Yom Kippur with the fasting and the reading and, and the different things that happen, if we miss that fact, we miss the most valuable lesson to learn from Yom Kippur. Is he's coming back to judge the earth and therefore we must prepare our hearts and it must change the way that we live. Now if he's coming back, I believe he's coming back soon. And if we believe that he's coming back soon, that it should create an urgency that some things need to change. The way we live needs to be affected by that reality. In Matthew 24, he gives us two things that are clearly a sign of the end time events and what's happening. Now, these things happen all throughout history. Um, again, one of the reasons that crisis events turn people to the Lord is because they start Remembering that he may actually come back soon. Because in Matthew 24, he talks about war, famine, um, people fighting against each other, violence. Right? So those kind of crisis moments gives us this spark that, oh, <laughs> I should be remembering that. Um, he, he, he's actually coming back. And the coming back always has to do with judgment. And so that, that fear of judgment makes us change course. Course correct. 
Um, but there's two things in Matthew 24 that happen that are very important. And should be a warning to us. One is, it says that many will fall away. And then the second one says that many hearts will grow cold. The love of many will grow cold. Those are two things that are directly related to the state of our faith and the state of our heart. Will our heart be ready before He returns? See, Yom Kippur and, and the Feast of the Fall should serve as a preparation time to ask the Lord, Lord, is my heart ready for the day that you come back? Am I ready for the challenges that await us? Am I ready for the things that are about to happen? Will my heart stand fast? Am I rooted and grounded in your word so that when those things happen, I am not surprised? Do I know the time and the season that I'm living in? Ephesians 5 says that we are children of the light, therefore His return is not like a thief in the night to us. We know the seasons and the times. It says that the return of the Lord will be like a thief in the night to the children of the darkness. Lord, do I know your word? Am I going to be surprised But when, when things start happening? Will it shake me? Will it shake my faith? I always get this question when I'm doing Q&As in different churches as I'm speaking. Um, people ask me, you know, what I think about the mark of the beast. And it seems to be something that everybody's preoccupied with. I don't know why, um, but it seems to be something like central to people's fear about the end times. And um, it's like always on their mind. And especially because of conspiracy theories, sadly. But um, they asked me about the mark of the beast. What I think it would be, what it would look like, or different things like that. And my first response is always, when it happens, we will know. We don't have to be afraid. When it happens, we will know. The word makes it clear the context of what will be happening and how it will happen. Why it is happening. The mark of the beast has to do with false worship, the worship of the image. Um, of the beast and those who do not worship the image will not receive the mark no one if you're rooted and grounded in the word of God and you're a child of the light you're not going to wake up one morning and be look at your arm or whatever it is and be like oops what did I do <laughs> did I just do that um, oops I got a vaccine and now I'm marked you know that's not going to happen that's not going to happen if we are walking with the Lord and we are preparing our hearts before Him and we are rooted and grounded in His Word, the days of His return will not be a surprise to us and the events leading up to His return will not be a surprise to us. In Acts chapter 1, they ask Him about the restoration of the kingdom. They were still expecting a physical restoration of the kingdom in Israel. Their question was not wrong. That was their understanding after 40 days of walking with Yeshua, having been taught by him after he was raised from the dead. Their last question to him was, when will you restore the kingdom? That was a very valid and important question. Out of everything they learned, they knew that this was the end result. The establishing of a very real kingdom on the earth. And so he tells them, it is not for you to know the times of the seasons that the Father has fixed. So we understand that there is a fixed time and fixed time may not be what we think as a date and a moment but fixed in the sense that there are events that will happen and need to happen before he comes back and when those fixed events begin to take place we won't be surprised we won't be shaken we won't be offended one of the dangers with pre-trip theology in my opinion is people will be offended at God we will be offended at God for, for being here as the Lord judges the earth and begins to pour out his judgments which are righteous now I believe there will be supernatural grace for believers we're going to see incredible revival we're going to see the Lord do miracles but we will be living through a judgment of the earth And the most important thing that the Lord is asking for us is that we would be ready to be a witness during that time. But you cannot be a witness if you're offended. You cannot love a dying world if you're angry at it. You cannot bring healing to broken people if your own heart is hurt and broken and angry. 
The love of many will grow cold. One of the ways that the enemy will make sure that we are not ready is to get us offended. Now, this is where I want to shift a little bit. We talked about the feast and its significance and the urgency of the hour, understanding the season and the times we live in. And in light of that, we understand that one of the enemy's greatest plans will be to make our hearts grow cold, to make our love grow cold. And the way that that happens is through offense. When we are offended, we begin to harden our hearts and our love begins to become cold. Not just towards people, but also God. When I was in the military, um, when I was in the military, I, I was doing well with my faith for a season, but I was still struggling with some things. And um, I had a lot of trauma from things that happened with my dad and my family. Um, he had left the family. And I mean, there was, there was a lot of hurt, things that I was dealing with emotionally. And so I was, just, I was carrying a lot of things. I was isolated, lonely in the army. I was only the, the only believer in my unit for those three years. Um, and I remember one, one day, I was, in, uh, I, was, I was in a program that does Jewish studies um, in the army. And I, I received a phone call. And, well, I talked to somebody... I had been pursuing this this young girl that I really thought it was from the Lord. And she rejected me. She said no. And for most people, that wouldn't be a big deal. It shouldn't be a big deal. But with everything that was going on in my own heart and with my own fear of rejection and with my, my own sense of rejection, the trauma I was dealing with, it was like the straw that broke the camel's back. Is that the correct saying? Okay. It was like that was the last thing that I could take. After everything I, I'd been trying and trying to walk with the Lord and be a, a testimony to other people. And I was sharing about Yeshua in this um, Jewish course, which they didn't let me continue because I was too much a believer. And um, funny story, actually, I made one of the teachers there cry. I, I kind of feel bad about it, but um, she was teaching about the oral law. And so I, I showed her the two scriptures from, I believe it's in Deuteronomy, where it talks about Moses writing down everything the Lord spoke to him. And I showed her that scripture and I said, well, how do you handle that scripture? How can there be an oral life? Moses wrote down everything. She couldn't answer. She, she became very frustrated. Well, what ended up happening is all the other kids actually joined me, but in a way more angry and a, a lot more um, anti-spirit, you could say. And uh, everybody kind of ganged up on her. And then the teacher just left the classroom. And I was told later that she was crying outside, but um, I felt bad about that. Uh, so I was, I was sharing my faith a little bit too much um, in this Jewish course. And so they didn't let me continue. Uh, but I remember that, that evening when, when I, I experienced that rejection. It was like, that was the last thing I could take. And I remember, I, I remember the very moment that the thought entered my head and I agreed with it. And I said, I'm done. I'm done. I can't do this anymore, Lord. And after that moment for a season, I remember exactly what happened that evening um, that we were drinking with friends. And um, from that day for a season, I began to, what I would call walk in open rebellion to the Lord. I really didn't care to try anymore. I started, instead of hanging out with believing friends, I started hanging out with friends from the army. I started going out drinking and partying. We would go to nightclubs and I started just openly walking in rebellion. And I, I was so offended at God. Why would you do this to me? Why would you lead me in this way and then cause this rejection? And why, why am I having to deal with all of this? And um, I was so offended at God that I, I remember the moment that I said, I'm done. Out of that offended heart, I said, I'm done. Now, what was interesting is the Lord still had a lot of grace on me. I still continued to go to congregation every week. Uh, not every week, but every few weeks when I would go back home. Something in me knew that if I stopped going to congregation, that would be the end of my faith. Like, if I stopped going to congregation, I would walk away from the Lord, like many of my friends had in the army. Um, and so somehow I continued going to congregation, even though I would fall asleep during the service. Like, I didn't care much for it, um, but I would still go. I really believe that was the grace of the Lord. That kept me connected um, enough to a community and a fellowship that the Lord uh, was able to still have a hold of my life. And so after a season like this, I believe it was probably about a year, nine months, a year, something like that. Um, I received a phone call. It was Erev Yom Kippur, ironically. 
It was the end of Yom Kippur 2011. I was about a month away from finishing my army service. And I get a phone call from my mom. It was right before Yom Kippur was about to start. Um, so you're not supposed to be on your phone. And like people would get offended if you're on your phone. So my mom calls me and she starts telling me about something that happened with one of my sisters. And um, it was very serious. Uh, she had made some poor decisions. And I began in that moment, it was like a wake-up call. And I began to understand this was a sister that I had been very close to. And um, my dad leaving the family had very heavily affected her. And I had been a big influence on her positively in the years before that. And I began to sense that everything I said that I would not be like my dad, I began to do. I began to be like my dad. And I was the oldest person at that time living in the, living in the home. Um, and so I began to see I had a spiritual influence. And what I was doing, the decisions I was making, and the lifestyle I was having began to trickle down and affect other people in my family. And that was a real wake-up call to me because I had said that I would never do that. Um, and... I mean, it was like somebody came and just slapped me in the head. And, I mean, just a real wake-up call. Um, and I remember the following day, was, it, was, uh, it was a Saturday, actually. I think Yom Kippur actually fell that day on a Saturday. Um, so Saturday morning, I went into the Beit Knesset, the synagogue. We don't have congregations, and we don't have um, chaplains in the Israeli military or anything like that. So I went to the synagogue. It was an underground synagogue in the Golan Heights. It was up in a place called Har Bental or Mount Bental. Um, and most of the base is underground, so you can't see it. And so the synagogue was underground, and you know I'm in this little tiny space underground, and I'm not going to take a Bible or a New Testament into the synagogue on Yom Kippur of all days when everyone's praying. Um, so I just, I took the Sidur. I just took the regular prayer book, the Sidur, and I just started reading out of it. And I read out of it from morning till evening, over and over, and I didn't read through all of it. I would pick, like, I would, I would pick the places where there was clear scripture. There's a lot of things in there I don't like and I think are not, not, not for us as believers, but um, there was a lot of scripture in there. And so I used that as my scripture. And so I would just read. I was reading through Psalms and um, the Prophets, which sadly I think most of the people that read those books don't even know that it's quotes from the Bible. Um, and I began to repent. I began to repent, but the repentance was not just about, I'm sorry for everything I did and going through a list of things I did wrong. My repentance was, Lord, I'm sorry that I was so offended. I want to return back to you. I want to return again. I want to come back. Help me. And that day was a, a transformation moment for me in my life where you could say I came back to the Lord in His grace. So Yom Kippur has, for me, has real, real significance because I have history with it. It's, I, I remember it to this day exactly that the place I was sitting, what was happening, what I was praying, what I felt. Um, but that's the power of offense. The power of an offended heart to literally get up and walk away from everything you know because you're offended. And that can happen because we're offended at God. That can happen because we're offended at people. And that offense can come from anywhere. From politics, from leaders, from church members or congregational members. It can come from family, from friends, from strangers. Sadly, we've seen over the last season more and more offended people. The body seems to be filled with offended people. We're offended at someone who doesn't agree with us. We're offended over people who don't think politically like we do. We're offended at leaders for making decisions we don't agree with. And we, we become bitter and angry people. And Hebrews chapter 12 warns us very clearly about bitterness. I, I read this quote. I was listening to a TED talk and I, I, uh, there was this quote that they said, uh, trauma... Trauma not transformed is trauma transferred. When you don't deal with trauma, it doesn't stay neutral. It begins to affect the people around you. You begin to transfer that to other people. Offense is very much like trauma. It doesn't stay just with you. Unforgiveness doesn't stay neutral. It grows. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby the many be defiled. 
What it says is that the root of bitterness, it's a root that actually grows into a tree or into a plant, whatever it may be, but it grows. Roots grow. And bitterness is something that grows and bitterness and offense is something that begins to contaminate the people around us. Why does that happen? Because when we are offended, when we're hurt, when we're um, walking in unforgiveness, when we're in pain, the first thing that we do, not everyone, but the first thing that we do is we go to someone else and we we share that pain or offense with them expecting to be justified about our pain. If we want someone to confirm or justify that the way we think or feel is okay, that it's justified, that the other person is not okay. We want someone to justify our hurt and our pain. And we feel like we have a right to our pain. You don't know what he did to me. You don't know what he said to me. You don't know how I feel. People would tell me about forgiving my own dad and um, reaching out to him and all kinds of stuff. And for a long time, I, I walked with a lot of hatred towards my dad. So much so that I would have dreams about killing him. And um, when people would say that to me, I would say, you don't know how he hurt me. You don't know what he did to me. You have no right to tell me I need to forgive. I felt like I had a right to my pain. I had a right to hold on to un- my unforgiveness. But when we come to the cross, we give up our rights. And we come to the cross, we've laid down our rights and we have no right to hold on to how we feel. Now, how you feel may be correct, may be justified, may have good reason, but you don't have a right to hold on to it. God calls us to walk in forgiveness. God calls us to walk in love towards one another. Now, you can can confront in love. You can um, require accountability when somebody hurts you. There, there, that doesn't do away with those needs, but you cannot live, you cannot walk as a hurt, broken, offended person. And the worst, the, the last thing the world needs, especially before the Lord returns, is an offended, broken, hurting church that does not let go, does not forgive, that is angry with the people around them, that is angry at the leaders around them, that is angry at the governments, that is angry at situations that happen and all they see is offense and anger and they say, what, what are you calling me to? Why should, I, why should I want that? That is not attractive. That is not an attractive thing to a lost world that's looking for, for, for God's love, for God's compassion. The last thing it needs is to see an offended people who are holding on to their offense. So I want to encourage us this Yom Kippur and this season to not just think about how we hurt people, but to think about their own state of our hearts. Where are we at? Where are we at with our own hearts? Am I offended? Am I angry? Am I bitter? Is there unforgiveness? Allow the Lord to deal with issues that may be there that need to be dealt with. Again, doesn't, doesn't disqualify or do away with the fact that sometimes our pain is real and people hurt us. But we don't, we don't have the right to walk in that unforgiveness. It will rot away at everything you do. When I was walking in unforgiveness towards my dad, it began to impact every aspect of my life. I had a hard time connecting with the Lord. I, was, I had a hard time connecting with people. My sense was that nobody understood me. I was alone. Nobody understood what I was going through. So I couldn't emotionally connect with people around me. So I felt lonely and isolated. It's hard to trust other leaders and people that you see as father figures because you've experienced that brokenness. Like I said, I began to have dreams. It was so deep that it began to affect my dream life. I began to have dreams about killing my dad. It begins to affect and infiltrate every aspect of your life when you walk in unforgiveness and offense. And the Lord wants to cleanse us from that so that we can start stand blameless and ready before He returns. He wants us to stand blameless and ready before He returns. Let's stand together. We'll finish with a prayer. Father, we thank you for this season, Lord, where we can examine our own hearts. 
not to look at the faults of other people, not to see how other people have hurt us or failed us, Lord, but to examine ourselves and to look within ourselves and to say, Lord, what do you want to do in my life? What needs to be changed in my own life? What needs transformation? What brokenness do you want to heal in my own life? Lord, is there offense that I'm not letting go of? Is there bitterness? Is there anger towards the people around me? Or again, during this season, even politically, politics, has it, has it infiltrated my mind and my heart? A few months ago, when all the, um, when all the uh, uh, what do you call it? The, um, not revolts, that would be the wrong word, but um, the riots, all the riots on the streets. Um, I don't know if you guys were watching the news, but there was a lot of riots on the streets of Arabs and Jewish people. There were ser- several lynchings of Jewish people. There was lynchings of Arab people. And I remember just watching the news and the stuff that got stirred up on social media was just pure evil. And um, even from believers. The stuff that I saw spreading on social media from believers was shocking. And I felt my own heart start to, it's like you start feeling that offense rising up. And those thoughts of bitterness and anger towards Arab people, of being justified that we are right and they're wrong. And I had to, I mean, I recognized it right away because I had walked already through that several times. But I had to turn off my computer and for several days just ignore the news and ignore social media and not, not to have anything to do with that, not to let it impact my heart. And I started uh, praying. And out of that, we started organizing Zoom events where we started praying Jewish and Arab people together, taking communion in the evenings while people were out riding in the streets. Um, it was a very holy moment, in my opinion. But it was just so sad seeing years of work for unity getting destroyed within days because the enemy was able to fill people with anger towards one another and offense towards one another. If you have to disconnect during the season, disconnect. COVID is only the beginning of the things that are about to happen there. It's only a sign of the times. It's like the beginning of the birth pains. And if we lose ourselves because of something, I call this light affliction. COVID is a light affliction. It's the judgment of the Lord on the earth, but it's a light affliction. If we lose our witness, if we lose our faith, if we lose our joy and our peace because of COVID, which is what I've seen happening all over, people absolutely losing themselves losing their witness because of COVID, because of politics and opinions and different things. If that is what makes us to cause, to lose our peace and to lose our witness, then we are in trouble for what's going to come afterwards. Let this be a preparation time. COVID is a preparation time for our hearts, for what is to come later. If we cannot walk out this season with joy and love and forgiveness and peace, then we are in trouble with what's to come later. This is a light, COVID is a light affliction. I understand people have been, I'm not saying that it, uh, people haven't died from it. People, I've, there was a church I was in last week. There were, within a week, they had two members of the church pass away uh, from COVID. La- ladies in their 50s who were otherwise, should have been healthy. They had maybe some, some other issues, but they should have been otherwise healthy. Uh, I'm not saying people aren't suffering from it. But this is light compared to what's going to come later. This is only the beginning of the birth pangs. So Lord, I ask that during this time we would prepare our hearts. Lord, that we would prepare our hearts to stand blameless, Lord. Lord, I ask that during this season you will help us to have peace and joy and love. That we would not lose our witness and allow the enemy to bring offense and anger and bitterness. Lord, that the world around around us needs to see a body that is full of faith, full of boldness, full of joy and love. And compassion. And Lord, I ask that we would be your hands and feet during this season. That people need to see that joy restored. Lord, prepare our hearts. Lord, that before you return, Lord, our hearts would stand fast before you. Rooted and grounded in your word. Walking blamelessly as children of the light. Lord, and that our hearts will not grow cold. Lord, that the fires of your love will burn strong in our hearts. That we will be walking in intimacy. Lord, that our lamps will be lit. Lord, that that fire would be lit. Lord, and if we have lost our first love, that we would, during this season, return to the first love. 
Lord, that this would serve as a warning, that Yom Kippur would serve as a warning of returning, returning to the first love, Shuvu, to return to that which we may have lost over time, through circumstances, through life, through words that have been spoken to us, through hurt, through pain, whatever it may be, through disappointment. Lord, that we would return to our first love, that we would return to the place of that fire that burns in our hearts, Lord. And that our hearts will not grow cold. Hallelujah. And Father, we also pray for all the Jewish people who will be observing and, and fasting uh, during Yom Kippur, Lord. I just pray that as they read the Siddur, as they read the prayers, Lord, that they would recognize, that they would see, Lord, that their eyes would be opened. Lord, you can use a prayer book like the Siddur and, and show the Messiah in it. You can show... Your, your Messiah through it. You can show Yeshua. Lord, I found, I found you through the Sidur in that season. I, 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 you brought me back through that book, Lord. And I ask that you would use it. Lord, you would use it to bring the Jewish people back to you. That all of Israel will be saved one day, Lord. Hallelujah. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.